Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. God, thanks for this topic. Thanks so much for what we've been studying, and some of it hard to understand and grapple with the idea of your um, plan of salvation that was worked out from before the foundation of the world, as the scripture says. And so, God, that's tough for our minds to wrap themselves around that idea of the eternality of your plan and even just your plan that involves the fall and sin and all the things that uh, really give us pause when we think about that. But God, as we turn kind of the coin over tonight and look at the side that we experience and we deal with every, uh, every time we talk to someone about their testimony, I just pray this would be a helpful time to fill in some of the gaps that maybe are overlooked, commonly overlooked because of the evangelical culture today, or maybe just because we haven't given adequate attention to some of these aspects of uh, biblical salvation, biblical conversion. So make this a good and helpful night. Equip us now. Keep our minds sharp and focused in Jesus' name. I want to talk tonight about our experience of salvation, uh, our experience, what we will experience and go through. In contrast, now these are long first subpoints here, the first three, and I apologize for that. In contrast to God's eternal decisions, we talked about God's sovereign will, we talked about God's decretive will, we talked about the way God has worked out things through his plan in predestination and election. We dealt with that a couple weeks back. And so we are thinking tonight, not in those terms, but in contrast to those. As Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, I wasn't doing much before the foundation of the world, so that's a hard thing for me to understand. But he had figured this out and made a decision before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks back for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He's got a plan. He's got a salvific plan to work it out in time sovereignly. That's uh, interesting, esoteric, theological, uh, but that's not what we're dealing with tonight. We're also looking at our salvation experience or our experience in salvation. In contrast, the Christ's work of atonement. Those were the last two weeks. We had God's eternal plan for salvation worked out before the beginning of time. We had God's work through Christ in the atonement and what that was all about. We looked at in detail last time we were together. That obviously took place in, in, the, in the calendar at some point. We can look back 2,000 years ago, probably in 33 AD or 30 AD, one or the other. We had Christ die for our sins in accordance with the scripture. It was all planned by God, but it took place in a point in time. And we could say that our sins, as Colossians says, were, were nailed to the cross. Well, that was a past event in time. And he was buried, raised on the third day, according to the scripture. This was something that we put our hope in and our salvation rests on, but that's not what we're dealing with tonight. We're going to talk about our experience in salvation also in contrast, longest point of the night right here, in contrast to God's sovereign arrangement of one's life. God has, according to Acts 17, 26 and 27, made from one man 
every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Now, here's the purpose clause, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. So the idea of God setting us in the timeline, in a particular place, uh, uh, sovereignly determining where we would live so that we could be saved in this particular description so that we might find our way or feel our way or grope our way toward him to try and get that move of our lives toward him. And, and that is not what we're dealing with either, that we're here in the 21st century. What we're going to talk about from point two through 10 is the experience. And you may say, well, I look at my experience. I don't see all these equally weighted in my own experience. In other words, I may see some of these more obviously than others, and that's fine. But the scripture speaks to all nine of these, and so we want to discuss them. Even in that particular passage we were just looking at there in Acts 17, he's determined the place and the time in which you would live on his planet and on his timeline so that you could seek him. So we want to talk about that idea of having that experience at one point in your life of seeking after God. We understand that to be something that God does, the divine drawing, pulling, carrying, taking you from one place where you were without any thought of God to beginning to think about God and having that attraction to God, seeking him out, wanting to find him. Now, we talk about in our modern churches, that, you know, is that church a seeker church, people will say. And I know that's been bashed, and rightly so, for some philosophical reasons and programmatic reasons. But the idea of people seeking after God is obviously a biblical idea. We just read it in Acts 17. God gets people, and he pulls them to himself. And that period of time is pre-conversion. And it's something that God does. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, pulls him, brings him along, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So you think about the experience, both as someone thinking through their testimony and also as one who seeks to do evangelism. We know that there is that period when someone has an interest in God and they start being drawn to God. And I suppose the sub... Emphasis here would be, we need to recognize that's not inherent to them. That's something that God is doing. As John 12 says later in the book, six chapters later, he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We deal more specifically with the extent of the atonement in our series down the road. Uh, We may look at the way that John likes to use the word all. And I I talk a lot about this, or I try to throw it in from time to time. Do I mean all? All. Uh, without distinction or all without exception. Uh, And there's two ways to look at this, and we'll make that clear in just a moment. But in this case, if they're like the John 6 people who will be raised up on the last day in a positive resurrection for God's blessing, well, then, of course, we're talking here about all without distinction. In other words, what kind of people does he draw to himself when Christ was lifted up on the cross? The idea of him being lifted up on a cross to draw people to himself certainly is from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So all kinds of people without any distinction. But we're not universalists. We looked at that in our first week together, and clearly he doesn't bring all people without exception. And we'll talk more about that distinction in a later lecture. Secondly, let's think through this in terms of the words calling and hearing. 
Now, we've got to break this down into two sub-points. And this is a bit familiar, I suppose, or familiar to some of you, and important. Let's talk in terms of a general call. And let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. A general call. This passage is very important because of the punchline in verse 14. We can even start there. And then we'll take the 13 intervening verses. But this is something you've heard bandied about, I'm sure. This line, maybe you've used it. Many are called, but few are chosen. So there's a distinction here between those who are chosen, in this case, in the parable of those who get to dine in the banquet, and those that are called or invited. That's a general call. And there may be people that have an attraction to God in their lives. As a matter of fact, there are many of them. They have an attraction of some kind, sometimes to the real, true, living God of the Bible. But they are not chosen. In other words, they are not ones that will actually be raised up, in a positive sense, on the last day by Christ. So this is a general calling. Let's read this parable here. Follow along as I read it. Verse number 1, Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants, now here's our word, to Kaleo, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. I want you to come. You're going to be called together here. You're going to be assembled together. That's what I want. But they would not come. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, uh, see, I prepared a dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, as you would imagine. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy, so go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came and looked at the guests, he saw a man there who had no wedding garments. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast them into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In this case, you've got three kinds of people that are called. You've got the people that are called who were the intended recipients of the invitation, and they were not interested. They paid no attention. And certainly in the context of Jesus' ministry, as Romans chapter 1 says, the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So the Jewish people that Jesus brings his ministry to first, many of them reject it. As Paul does in the book of Acts, he says, if you find yourself not worthy to receive this gospel, then I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And so we see this pattern of the invitation going out first and foremost to the biological sons and daughters of Abraham, and then it's secondarily brought to the rest of the world, to all the nations of the earth, as it says in Genesis chapter 12. So that's the first group. Then you have another group that's called, and they're the ones that seem very dramatic here at the end that aren't wearing the wedding clothes. They say, I want to go to the wedding feast, and they're drawn to it. They like the product. They like what they're going to get in this experience at the banquet hall, but they end up being cast out as well. Then you have the third group. They're called. They come. They put on the right clothing, and they receive the benefit of the kingdom. So you've got a call that you could say is generally extended to people that have no interest in it. 
Then you have a call that is extended to people that have an interest in it, but they're not willing to put on the clothes, the right clothes. And then you have those that are called and actually enter the banquet and they eat the banquet and they enjoy the the festival. The general calling that we're talking about can involve group number one and group number two. That's a general call. There's a second call we're going to look at in a second, but just to give you a verse from Isaiah 65, 12, and we experience this all the time in our evangelism. God says to you, when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. And in keeping with our sermon this past weekend, there's so much going on in God extending his call to people and, and people choosing not to do it. It's more than a a, a could not, it's, it's a would not. It's more than a, an inability, it's also an unwillingness. And so the call of God goes out to some that are unwilling, and you know that. We seek to have people come to Christ, and we call them to seek after God, and some aren't interested. You could say that's a general call. There are others that are interested, much like the four soils, and they attach onto this, they glom onto Christianity, but in the end, They aren't saved either because of one thing or another. In the parable, it could be the persecution because of the word that they've received. It could be the riches and worries of the world that that take them off the path. But the idea of calling in that sense, those two categories, the first two categories, we'll call it a general call. This second category of call is what we call an effectual call. This is the call where the Father draws them, calls them, attracts them, And they actually become followers of Christ. Real converted followers of Christ. The effectual call. Now notice the use of this word. Because if you you read in Matthew as we just did that many are called but few are chosen. You think, well, not everybody called then is saved. Now look at these verses. Clearly we can't say that about these verses. Verse 30 of Romans 8. And those he predestined, we looked at that two weeks ago, he also called. So if he's predestined them, he's called them. And those he's called, he's also justified. Well, that means they're saved then, right? Sure. And those he's justified, he's also glorified. So the chain of predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, we know that in this chain, that word calling has got to be a different kind of call than many are called but few are chosen. And the word we use in theology for that is an effectual call. It accomplishes what the calling is directing people to do. It actually carries through in an effectual way, a powerful way, in bringing people to the place of justification and ultimately glorification. Acts chapter 2, same thing. After talking about repentance and talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38, it then says, this promise of you repenting and having forgiveness is for you and your children and for all who are far off. So we've got the Jews and the Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So everyone that God calls in this particular passage, they end up getting the Holy Spirit because they repent and put their trust in Christ. Well, that's a different kind of call than we saw over there in the parable of the banquet. John 10, 16. Jesus in that good shepherd discussion, I'll have two verses here on this, in that discussion of being the good shepherd. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And there it is again. The gospel goes first to his people, the Jewish people, the people of Abraham, And he says, I'm going to go beyond that, as he said from the very beginning in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And he says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. I'm going to call, they're going to hear, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
Jew and Gentile, in one new man, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, this mystery that wasn't formally seen. And that's going to be because when the shepherd calls, they're going to hear his voice and respond, which is exactly how it's put later in the chapter, verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. He says, the reason you're not responding is because you're not my sheep. I'm calling you, but you're not responding. It's because you're not my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice. All those who were destined by God to be saved, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's an effectual call. I give them eternal life, and they will, they will never perish. So when the good shepherd goes and calls to those that are effectually called, then they respond. But many are called in an ineffectual way. In other words, many are called in a general way, in a general sense, and they don't follow the attraction to God. We've got to be distinguishing and discerning in our own minds about people not only that are invited and don't respond, but those that seem to respond and aren't actually responding the way God has called us to respond. They don't put on the wedding clothes. All right, number three. You can look back in your life. You can see in your evangelism. Yes, I have had at one point an awakening of some kind where I had no interest in God to pursuing God, an interest in God. Then you had to experience this, conviction. What are we talking about? We're talking about feeling bad. We're talking about recognizing sin. We're talking about feeling guilty. We're talking about having that sense of recognizing I have done wrong. I talk often about this because everyone's willing to check the box that if I want to get right with God, of course, I'm attracted to God. I have some interest in God. I feel drawn to God. But a lot of people want that God without this feeling, without this step. And it's impossible. Look at this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, I'm glad that you actually were grieved by the letter. I rejoice in that because it resulted in repentance, because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. It wasn't a terrible thing. It was a good thing, ultimately. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here's the scenario. I cannot have salvation without repentance, and I can't have repentance without this feeling of sorrow or grief. The Bible calls that conviction, being convicted of our sins, feeling guilty, recognizing I am unworthy before God, the experience of conviction. Letter B, as we saw on the weekend, creation should play a role in this. Unless you're blind to yourself, and if you are, then you will never get to the place of recognizing your need for the gospel or for grace. Creation should show you the disparity between your life and creation. If you look at creation... As Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring glory, what you're lacking, greatness, perfection, beauty. And the sky is proclaiming his handiwork. And he does beautiful things in creation, and you can't keep your garage clean or your closet organized, not to mention your thought life. So God does beautiful things even in a fallen world, and his glory is reflected on all the earth, Isaiah 6. And we look in our own lives and say, we got a problem. And day to day, it's pouring out speech. And night to night, it's revealing knowledge. That's the kind of thing that should remind us that God in his speaking and preparing people for salvation, he's got to bring them through this portal of, of grief. And the only way to get there is for him to recognize, to have us recognize the disparity between his perfection and, and our lack and our depravity. 
And creation certainly plays a role in that. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I quoted that on the weekend. Clearly, his invisible attributes are being seen through the creative order. Important for us to recognize that. Maybe even in creation, in your own life, you can say, yes, it was a source not only of beauty for me, but a source of personal frustration for me to recognize I cannot have the kinds of things in creation, the beauty, the harmony, the symmetry, the perfection of that in my life. Conscience, of course, plays a role as well. I quoted on the weekend, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that even if you don't have the law, well, you've got conscience. And conscience is accusing you in certain situations because you know you've done wrong and you don't even need a Bible for that. A good passage for us to think through is David here, just like the way it's descriptively depicted in this, in this verse, 1 Samuel 24, 5 and 6. David, you might remember, had cut off the corner of Saul's robe there as he was relieving himself in the cave. And it said after that, David's heart struck him. There's a great picture of conviction, feeling bad, because he'd cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Now, there's no verse in the Bible about humiliating a king by cutting off the corner of his robe, and yet he recognized his own sin in wanting to disgrace him, showing that he could have killed him, but he didn't. And all of that was part of God's work through conscience to show him his sin. And that guilt is exactly what God has to show David or any of us to let us recognize we need a solution. It starts with recognizing the problem through conviction. Got to feel that guilt. If I don't feel that guilt, I don't have repentance. If I don't have repentance, I don't have salvation. Creation is going to play a role in that. Conscience is going to play a role in that. Of course, as I said on the weekend... Holy Spirit's also going to play a role in this. And the Spirit, let's just use this verb, accuses us. The Spirit has to accuse us, just like Paul's letter accuses the Corinthians, to lead them to grief and sorrow and regret and guilt so that they can repent and be saved. And the Holy Spirit accuses us, and that's the promise of the Spirit. When he comes, Jesus said, we quoted this passage on the weekend, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin because they've got a problem. They don't cling to the solution. They don't cling to the solution because they don't see the problem of sin. Seeing the problem of sin is going to drive them to the solution and to trust in Christ. Concerning righteousness because he says, I'm not going to be here anymore. When Mr. Perfect walks in the room, everyone feels less than. And so Christ is not around, so the Spirit's going to play that role in putting the measuring stick up and to show you you don't measure up and you're deficient. And you're going to see me no longer. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's cast out. There's no forgiveness for him. He's already condemned. We are not in this life until we seal the deal, at least in time and space, by rejecting Christ in this biological life on earth. And the reality here is that the Spirit of God is going to help us see that. Our judgment, our coming judgment, where we to turn from the solution to sin and the spirit sin that he convicts us of in this particular passage is the spirit's work and as i said from the book of revelation chapter 5 that spirit goes out into all the earth to do this kind of work experience of conviction lastly of course scripture gets very specific in sentencing us and telling us this is the problem and we deserve punishment for it the law of sin and death that is the thing that leads us to repentance that the law says you're guilty And that guilt should lead to punishment. 
some kind of response from a holy God. Scripture sentences us from all kinds of things we wouldn't even know were sinful. Maybe our conscience not even kicking in because I'm doing something and, and trying to disgrace someone by cutting off the corner of their robe like David. I just, I didn't even know it was sin until the law said, no, that is sin. Because if you keep it that, you're going to be greedy. You're going to be a thief. You're going to be something. And in that case, I'm talking about the law of coveting. And Paul says in Romans 7, 7, had it not been for the law, for the scripture, I wouldn't have known sin in this case. A lot of things we would know, certainly in creation and conscience. Uh, for that which is known... I'm sorry, for I would not have known what it is to covet had the law said, you shall not covet. And of course, it goes on to say your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's stuff and and his herds and his flocks. You can't covet anything from your neighbor. So those kinds of rules convict me in a way that my conscience and creation can't with a kind of specificity. And of course, the scripture carries out all kinds of specific responses to the, the sin of whatever it might be. There's a judicial and penal response from the scripture, so I'm feeling really bad before God. Fantastic. If you don't feel that, you can't be saved because I'll never be led to repentance. Gets a little worse here. Number four, the fear of offending God. The fear of God, one of the most overlooked doctrines of our day, not only in pre-conversion experience, but post-conversion experience. We've got a lot of deficit in this area so let's make it a point and make sure we go beyond just the sense of feeling guilty but recognizing that i've offended god okay the idea of offense of god should be something that creates a gravity in my own heart about the problem that i that i have and if i don't have the fear of god proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 uh, then how in the world can i even make sense of anything the bible says the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools who continue on in their lifestyle and their sin, they despise it. They don't like wisdom. They don't like instruction. And the pivot point there, this text says, and the rest of the scripture says, is the fear of God. So just to start with the idea of the fear of God, we'll get into the details here in a second. But another verse for you, the 36th Psalm. Psalm 36.1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Sin continues to to, to coax and to, to... uh, lure the, the, the wicked. And why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. We've got a sin problem and we continue down the path of sin because we have no sense of offending a holy God. Proverbs sixteen six: By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now that's atonement. And God, because he's faithful and because he's a loving God, he's going to provide atonement. The problem is people don't grab that. They don't seize that. They don't become participants in it because they don't fear the Lord. But by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I got to have turning away from evil. That's repentance. We'll look at that in a minute. Or I'm not going to get the, the atonement that God provides. So the fear of the Lord becomes the pivot point, becomes the offering, it becomes the, the, the real turning point, and it's at the core of an experience that comes out of conviction. I'm convicted, I've offended God. It's relevant, now I get to letter A. It's relevant because God is our creator. There's a lot of people you might offend on the freeway, going to work and coming back, and you don't spend a lot of time at night staying up late because you cut someone off in the freeway. No big deal, just a fellow commuter. Don't give it a lot of thought. The idea of offending God becomes a real convicting and awful kind of guilt-laden feeling because we recognize at some point, 
we understand creation, conscience, the spirit, and the Bible, is that we've offended our creator. Look at this in verse uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 18 and 19. He says to his people, you were unmindful, you were forgetful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and he spurned these people because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Now, you're my kids. You gave no thought to your parent. And he said, I'll hide my face from them and I will see what their end will be for they were a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Kids that give no thought to the authority of their parents is the picture that's drawn here and it's even infinitely worse than that for us because God's not just the supervisor of the universe, he's the creator of the universe. There's a built-in accountability there. There's a built-in sense of dread if I've really offended the God of the universe who made me. It's one thing to cut off some fellow commuter. It's another thing to realize you just cut off your boss near the off-ramp of your office. It's another thing if if you've done something to violate the God who made you. That should be a part of the compounding of our conviction when we get a sense that God is our creator. You see where we're going here now. Letter B. We should have a fear of offending God, which is an experience in the salvation experience of everyone who gets saved. At some level, they have that sense if they're biblically converted because they recognize at some point that God is holy. Job chapter 4, verse 17 through 9, verses 17 through 19. Eliphaz is the respondent. I know he said some things that weren't biblical, but here's principles we can see throughout the scripture. We can see there's none righteous, no, not one. You can read the third chapter of Romans. But look at this. Can a mortal man be right before God? The answer, of course, biblically is no, that rhetorical question. Can a man be pure before his maker? Well, how can that be? Because even his servants, he he puts no trust in them. He doesn't think the best of them. Moses, Daniel, Abraham. He's not saying, I'm going to entrust myself to you. And even his angels who've rebelled, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust. The more we recognize the exaltation of God in his perfection and holiness, the more we realize the gravity of our sin and that we've offended that God. That great passage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, I know I paint that scenario all the time, with the heightened view and exalted view of God, the first thing Isaiah realizes is his own sin. Woe to me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He'd seen a lot of sin that he had described and denounced in the first five chapters, but now he's talking about the words they speak? That's a lot, I mean, that's a lot more of a minor offense than the things they were doing in Israel at that time. And yet, he says, that becomes a surfaced issue that makes me realize my offense to the living God. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's a holy God. The seraphim are flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. The reality of this and the depth of this is because God is holy. Letter C. We should have the fear of offending God in our testimony. And there should be in our evangelism something that brings the person who's becoming convicted and under the conviction of God's spirit that sense of offending God and that becomes serious because God is just you've been through partners creator holy just there's our third point now picture I threw up a what a courthouse there because I think if you were in that scene right there and you were sitting not there in the jury box as you are in this particular picture but if you were called there 
to answer for your crimes. I mean, that's a, that's a, a nerve-wracking place to be. Picture this now in some divine tribunal that's painted here poetically for us in Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He's got all the authority. He's not just some guy in a black robe who normally wears Bermuda shorts and a golf shirt. This is God who's reigning in heaven. Let the peoples tremble before him. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim who are crying out, holy, holy, holy. That's one thing we recognize that brings me a sense of severity regarding my offense toward God. Let the earth quake. They should be shaking. The Lord is great in Zion. This is this celestial picture of the great Jerusalem. He's exalted over all the people. So he's our creator. He's holy. Verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might. Now here's the problem. Loves justice. Now if you walk into the courtroom. And you, are, you know you're guilty. Creation, conscience, the Spirit, Scripture has made that clear to you. And you walk in and someone leans over and whispers to you, hey, the judge loves, what do you want to hear? Mercy, right? That's what I want to hear. The judge loves justice. That's, that's not going to be a good day for me as the defendant in court. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. I mean, you're going to make sure every last penny is paid for and settled in all the crimes. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And you certainly have, even when Moses hits a rock, when he was told to speak to it, you wouldn't even let him go into the promised land. Look at the exacting justice of God. What does that do? It leads me to a fear of offending God. And at some point in my testimony, at some point in my evangelism, I want to see that in the lives of people I'm sharing with. And certainly I should attest to some level of that on the heels of my conviction of my own sin. Our experience in salvation number five, back of the page, certainly will involve a cry for mercy. I need God to go easy on me. I need God to somehow overlook my crimes. I need God because I realize my sin. I recognize the gravity of offending God. I fear what might happen to me. Which, by the way, I should sidebar in this for a second. (laughs) Some people... I've heard this said, you don't want to scare anybody into the kingdom. Have you heard that before? I'm glad at least a third of you giggled at that. I wished all of you had. That's a silly statement. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. You cannot read these passages of Scripture and think somehow I'm supposed to be drawn to Christ and then embrace Christ without this experience of dread at some point. I cannot possibly think I can grasp the grace of God and throw myself on the mercy of God, which is required, real biblical repentance, unless at some point I've been to the place of, oh man, I'm in deep trouble with God. Now think about that. When you sit there and you say, well, I don't want my kid going to a camp if they're going to teach on hell at that camp. Hey, I've been there. I've been teaching at our youth camp. Parents say that kind of stuff. I don't want them scaring my kid into heaven. Okay. If that's your theology, I I would really challenge you to think you don't know what the Bible says. You don't have a sense of the scriptural components that lead people to a place of real contrition and genuine repentance. When you're at that place, you'll cry for mercy. That's why we have to manufacture all these silly little mechanisms to get people saved. Aren't you going to have an altar call? Why don't you make people raise hands? Why don't you have some room they go back to? I guarantee you this. As one of the great 
theologians of church history said, Keith Green, if you know who he is. Listen, you don't have to lead anybody in a sinner's prayer. If the components of the gospel come together, that's my line, but to paraphrase Keith, that sinner prayer, sinner's prayer is going to gush out of them. Because the reality of conviction, the reality of God being creator, holy, and just, is going to lead someone to this step, number five, to cry out for the mercy of God. If you want mechanisms and things to sign and pine coats to throw in the fire and aisles to walk and all this other stuff, I guarantee you, you're going to just aid a lot of false, quote-unquote, conversions to Christ because they never went through the steps that are the experience of conversion and salvation in the Bible, which certainly involves conviction and the fear of offending God, which leads to the cry for mercy. Look at this great line from Psalm 86 verses 3 through 6. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all day. I mean, the idea of someone reaching out for the mercy of God and the grace of God is not like, when is this service going to be over? I'm kind of into this. I could raise a hand and walk an aisle and sign something. I, I, I would do that because I'd like this message. No, no. Here's the idea of a heart gushing out this quote-unquote sinner's prayer. I need to be heartened, gladden the soul of your servant. To you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For to you, O Lord, you're good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to my plea for grace. That's the kind of prayer and one of many. I just picked one that was poetic from Psalm 86. But the idea of that cry for mercy certainly is part and parcel of a conversion experience. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 I mean, I think to myself, the cry for mercy is even one that isn't gleeful. Look at this verse. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you didn't erase them, if you didn't remove them from me as far as the east is from the west, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, the idea is I can sign on the dotted line, get my insurance policy to the spiritual Disneyland in the sky, get hell canceled, and isn't that a great thing? Oh, it is a great thing. But even those who recognize forgiveness grasp it with a sense of fear, the fear of God. How gracious is God to take my sin that should condemn me and to put it behind me and to, put, to nail it to the cross. That's the kind of, of contrition, the kind of mercy that we cry out for that recognizes we don't deserve it. Number six, let's get to the heart of it now, the experience of repentance. The experience of repentance. No one can say they're a Christian unless they've gone through the experience of repentance. Just to take a little theological point here for a second, let's just make sure everyone understands it is essential. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Here's the statement of the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Different setting, same idea. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the idea of Acts chapter 1, Matthew 28, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, go make disciples of all the nations. The message clearly spoken here in in Luke 24 is that people need to repent so that they can get this forgiveness. They become disciples by repentance, putting their trust in Christ, having their sins blotted out, having the Spirit given to them. There's many aspects to it, but the verb here that helps us understand in the noun form here is the call to repent. And that repentance is going to be proclaimed to all the nations. And all you have to do is start looking for it in the Bible, and you'll see the connection everywhere. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he wants me to repent so that I will not perish, as Jesus often said in his ministry. Those who don't repent, they will perish, and we're not talking about the first death, we're talking about the second death. We saw it over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. A godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, if it doesn't lead to repentance, well then, it results in death. People celebrate in the New Testament because people repent. And repentance is the pivot point. It's the thing that opens this gate of salvation for us in our human experience. I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And Luke 15, Lord willing, when we get there in our study, our verse-by-verse study of the book, you'll recognize this is in the context of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. These are the ideas that clearly present the picture of the gospel, and it all hinges on the idea of repentance. The experience of repentance is certainly necessary. It's essential. You cannot be saved without it. And some people will say, well, that's fine. Even as Phil said on the second week we were together here, as long as it's, an, it's a synonym for faith. And, and Dallas Seminary at one point even put that into their doctrinal statement. You had to sign that if you taught there or if you entered in as a student to say, I believe that the word repentance is nothing more than a synonym to the word faith. Therefore, they had to come up with a definition that would help to merge those two ideas together. And they said, well, look, it's a change of mind. You have to change your mind about Christ. And they got that from the New Testament word that is translated repentance, metanoia. Metanoia is a compound word. Got the preposition meta, which means after or afterward. And noeo, the, 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 the noun for um, mind or the verbal form here, to think. And to think afterwards, they said, well, there's the idea to repent is to simply change your mind. It's like the idea of relenting and saying, well, I was going to do this, but now I'm going to do this. And they applied it very specifically to help it harmonize with faith by saying, listen, if you think differently about Christ, then you're going from not believing him to believing him. So it's a change of mind. So they're simply synonymous terms. Well, one thing I think is important to point out, if you want to play word games like this, and there's so many examples we could use in the Bible, but in English we can make our own parallels. Awful is not just a combination of awe and full. Standing in reverence and full of that reverence uh, is not what the word awful means, just the opposite, actually. The word passage isn't pass, you know, throwing a football down a field, and age, some distinct period from church history, just to use two definitions from our dictionary and saying, well, that's what it is. A passage is some historical period where people were throwing footballs around or something. And Hamlet, this is great. I think a Hamlet is just a piece of meat from the upper portion of a pig's leg uh, that you allow people to eat, I guess. Or you allow pigs to have them. I don't know. No, of course not. Hamlet is a small village or district. All I'm telling you is you can play word games in a language you don't know and say, well, that sounds convincing, but you could play those same kind of word games in our own language and come up with nonsense, which is exactly what we've done with the word metanoia. We've, we've created pamphlets, mostly pamphlets, a couple books, I suppose, and sections of books have tried to establish this, but it's nonsense. It does not mean to change your mind. Do you need to change your mind to repent? Of course you do. 
That's certainly a a, a kernel of what has to take place when someone repents. But if I'm going to understand repentance, I can't just say, let's just take the word into two parts and, and let's try and make sense of the parts of it, put it together and think it just means to think after. What you have to do is to see its context and its usage and even the way the word and the concept is used in other languages like the divinely inspired Old Testament in Hebrew. And what you'll find is it means to turn from sin. Turn from sin, which is clearly evident when my relationship with sin is different. I was asked this week about repentance and can you repent of this and then still do it? And I I thought, well... That's an interesting question. If I told you I stop smoking, but I still smoke every day, you'd say, well, you haven't stopped smoking. I haven't turned from that behavior. My relationship with that behavior would have to change. And and that's the idea of repentance. Repentance is a turning around. I'm just throwing up some Old Testament verses here, which has the concept that is tied, just like repentance is tied to forgiveness, so the word Uh, Azub and Shub in Hebrew are the same concepts in the Old Testament. We see the similarities of the same arrangement, that God is willing to forgive and pardon if there is Azub and Shub. Take a look at these verses here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, there's the first point in our experience of salvation we talked about tonight. Call on him when he's near. That's the last point we, we talked about, calling out for his mercy. Let the wicked forsake... Let him, let him let it go, forsake his way. He's going down a path, now he's got to let go of that path. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, that goes to the core of who we are. Let him return, there's our word that's translated repentance, shub, to return, turn around, repent, go the other way, to the Lord, turning from sin to God, which is exactly how the word metanoia is used in the New Testament, for me to turn, to turn around that God may have compassion on him, because here's the arrangement, same we saw in Luke 24, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You repent, there's pardon. Taught that from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, through the ministry of Christ, through the ministry of John the Baptist. That's the idea. The New Testament parallels are the words metanoia and epistrepho. These are the two words in the New Testament. Repent, to turn, therefore, and turn back, here it is, epistrepho, Stop going the direction you're going. Turn away from that, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, there's so much that could be said on that. I thought I would print up a little segment of some things I've written before and give it to you. You got those when you came in. And you can look at a little bit of this on your own and recognize that the things you might hear about repentance, which I still read on the Internet. I read from people that go to to this church or have gone to this church that write about these things that like to just pick up on a simple breakdown of the two parts of the word metanoia and say, well, it doesn't mean to turn around or change my relationship with sin. Hopefully this will help you. It would be a good one for you to tuck away somewhere by your bedside or where you read or whatever and and spend a little bit of time going through this. There's a lot of texts involved in this because I want to show you the usage of these words and the turning of the word shub and the turning of the word metanoia. Clearly, this is more, as it says there on page 3, than just changed thoughts. So I didn't have time to get in detail into this tonight, so maybe this will help. If you've got Getting It Right, that little book, this is from the core section of that. Not the whole chapter, but it's a good chunk of that chapter. Okay? So homework there, since it's one sub-point of a presentation tonight, I didn't have time 
to go into detail on. Repentance, an experience of faith. I can't say I'm a Christian if I haven't gone through the concepts of turning to seek God, of feeling convicted of sin, of having that sense of dread over offending the holy God who is my creator, who's perfect, who's just, crying out for his mercy. Now having that decisive moment of repentance and, of course, that experience of faith. It's essential. And if you want to get more on this, which is not as controversial as the concept of repentance, you can pick up that little book. I'll give you one. They should give them away. I think they do give them away here at the church. Uh, Getting it right. There's a chapter just on the concept of faith as well. But just to make it clear, as though anyone needed this, Acts chapter 20, 21, we see these paired together. Clearly is the door that we see to forgiveness and relationship with God. It's not just repentance toward God, but it's also faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, ties these together. We've got to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. You want to know what the most fundamental preschool doctrines of Christ are? Well, here they are. You've got to go on a maturity, leave those behind. Not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. These ideas are fundamental. Repentance and faith, and they're foundational. Matter of fact, it's the first thing Jesus came in his public ministry preaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You want entrance to the kingdom? Here it goes. Repent and believe in the good news, in the gospel. What's the good news? Good news is the complement and solution to the bad news. The bad news is I've got a sin problem. I've offended God. I deserve his punishment. But God has provided a solution for me because he's a loving, merciful, gracious God. My response in the two verbs of the gospel are repent and believe or trust in the gospel can't help but saying trust because i want to make clear letter b it's obviously more than affirming what's true clearly it's more than saying hey i believe that jesus lived on the earth two thousand years ago two thousand years ago i believe that jesus died on the cross i believe that jesus rose from the dead and some people say well i know it's more than that you just got to believe that he died for you have you heard that just it's it's just agreeing with what Christ did, and maybe agreeing with what his intention was. It's just agreeing. It's a mental assent to the facts. James chapter 2, verse 19 should help us with this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And if that's too ethereal for you, I mean, you think of Judas, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the one it would be better if he wasn't born. You want to talk about believing that he died, that he lived, that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead? Judas believed all those things. The demons believe that. Their Christology is perfect. The problem is their faith is not the kind of saving faith that the Bible speaks of in James chapter 2, which we'll talk about. It's instead just an assent to the facts. Acts chapter 26, verses 27 through 29, when Paul is standing before King Agrippa, Herod the Great's great-grandson, he says, oh, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Well, there you go. He's just trying to get him saved. And they say, oh, I know that you believe. Oh, well, then he's saved, right? No. Matter of fact, even Agrippa knows that. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Are you working on me to get it? He sees that it's foundational to believe the truth of the scripture and the prophets regarding Christ and who he was. He knew that was foundational, but it wasn't all of it because he did believe it. Paul admits that he believes it. But he wasn't saved. And he said, Paul said, whether a short time or a long time, in other words, I know believing it is not, is not it. It's more than believing the facts. It's more than being convinced of the veracity of the prophets and the truth about Christ. 
No, you know there's more than that too. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this night, or this day rather, might become such as I am. Well, clearly it's more than just believing the facts. Now that word is used for both. We see it in James 2. We see it in Acts 26. Believing does mean believing the facts, just as metanoia is going to include changing your mind. But that is not saving repentance. If you, mean, if, you, if you mean by that only changing your mind, then it's not saving faith if what you mean by that is affirming the facts. Do I have to affirm the facts if, if I'm going to have saving faith? Well, of course you do. But that's not what saving faith is. Do you have to change your mind to repent? Of course you do. But that's not saving repentance. Big difference. Well, what is it? Clearly, it's a transfer of trust. Clearly, it's me saying I'm trusting in something to be all right against my conscience and creation and scripture and the spirit and whatever bad I feel, I have to now transfer any hope for being forgiven or right or granted mercy or not being dinged by God's holiness. I need someone else to solve this problem for me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul said, I had a lot going for me that made me better than the next guy. And this, of course, is the classic problem with people in our world. They think, I've got to be right with God because I'm better than the next guy. I know I'm going to be good with God because I look at the guy across the street and I'm better than him. Maybe, but he says, I've taken all my gains, all my assets, all my good doing, and I've suffered loss of all those things, and I count them as rubbish. They're no good for me. They're not helpful in order that I may gain Christ. I have to swap any sense of trust I have in the goodness of my own life and say, that's not going to cut it for me. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Look what I did. I didn't covet that day. I haven't committed adultery. I didn't steal anything this week. I didn't, I didn't say anything profane. I didn't use the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, okay. You've got some things in the asset column that you can say, man, I'm better than the next guy. But real Christianity and real faith is the renouncing of all that righteousness and say, I, what I need is the righteousness that comes through believing, through faith, through trusting in Christ. That's the transfer of my trust from my resume to his resume. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I need a righteousness to get right with the living God. There has to be the experience of me saying I'm no longer trusting in myself. And that was one good question from the James D. Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, the D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion. Some of you were into that back in the day. And they would ask you that question if you were to die today and stand before God. And, and he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you remember this? Smile at me if you remember that question. And the answer to the person... The average person on the street is going to be, well, because I'm pretty good, because I didn't do a lot of bad things, because I'm basically good, because I'm better than the next guy. And that's a good diagnostic revealing question, maybe overused, or at least it was a generation ago. But it gets me to say, am I ready to transfer my trust to Christ? I come with no righteousness of my own. I know that nothing I've got, just because of my lateral comparisons with my society or my culture... I know I cannot be acceptable before God. I have to trust in what Christ has done for me. I trust in his righteousness. That, by the way, is why you see three repeated prepositions in relation to the word pistuo, faith, that's the verbal form, or pistis, the noun form. You see the, the word in, is, or epi. In, is, or epi. Those are the three prepositions that translate in or in, or different Greek prepositions, but the same translation, or upon in, in, or upon. In other words, to believe in someone, to believe on someone is a lot different than believing someone. And that should be a clue that it's about shifting my confidence, not just assenting to the facts. I don't ask my neighbor, do you want to be a Christian? They say, yeah, how do I do it? Well, you believe Jesus. Believe what? Believe that he died for you. 
That's not saving faith. It's about you transferring your trust and putting your trust in him, putting your confidence on him, having your confidence and trust being his and his righteousness and not you and your righteousness. Transfer of trust. Then, and these may be experienced in varying degrees, but there should be some sense of this. We're looking at from the human perspective and the experience that we have. The Bible would say, if you transfer your trust and you've repented of your sins and you've cried out for his mercy, you felt the conviction of offending God and you know the conviction of your own sin. You've been drawn to him. You're seeking. Right? Well, you're going to feel this then. In some sense, you're going to have a sense of forgiveness. And let's just put it in biblical terms. You will have your conscience cleansed. You will have that sense that I was then someone who was guilty before God. And when I sat there and thought about my problem, I knew it wasn't solved. But now my conscience is cleansed. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, according to this arrangement, speaking of the Old Testament, the gifts and the sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers, but they deal only with food and drinks and various washings and regulations of the body that were imposed until the time of Reformation. We're not talking about the 15th or 16th century. We're talking about the time when God was going to bring in this new way in chapter 9, verse 14. He says it. How much more will the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, there's the parallel to the lamb, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I've done a lot of things that deserve God's punishment. Those are my dead works, not as some of the modern Christ, you know, gospel-centered sanctification people put it. These are the concepts of me doing things that result in death. The wages of sin is death. Those things now are being cleansed from my conscience. I did bad, and God is going to wash those. That's why the picture of redemption in the Old Testament was often tied with water. Not because of baptism. Water baptism is an ordinance, but because the picture of cleansing. There has to be some kind of washing of my heart. And the washing away of stuff on the outside of my body, as Peter says, isn't going to do it. It's the baptizo into Christ. It's the cleansing in the cross of Christ that makes me right. And it cleanses my conscience. If you know what it's like to become a Christian, I hope you can look at your testimony and say, there was that repentance and faith that led to the sense of relief because my conscience was now cleared. Letter B. And you sense because of a cleared conscience now entry into the relationship with Christ. There's a sense of restoration in your relationship. Back to this illustration. I quoted it earlier. It's not an illustration. It's a vision in in Isaiah 6. Take a look at these words on the screen. And I said, woe to me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We quoted that a second ago. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Woo, that's great. I'm going to run out of this place now and go hide and try and do better. No. God sets him up, and he says, he heard a voice, Isaiah did, of the Lord saying, Whom will I send? Who's going to go for us? And he said, Oh, here I, here I am. Send me. How dare you think you can be a a spokesman, an errand runner for the God that is holy and flying around with it? Why? Because your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt has been removed. The idea of a reconciled relationship, as we put it last week, a restored fellowship, a kind of relationship that now I can interact with him because my conscience is cleansed. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. 
I was guilty and now I'm forgiven. And now I have a sense to approach the throne of God with confidence, a restored relationship. That's an experience on the other side of a cleansed conscience. The sense of forgiveness, of course, it just feels like the problem is fixed. I carried around that weight like Bunyan wrote about on his back and he, the pack is relieved, it's fixed. The problem is, is gone. As Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, the Lord says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're going to be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be, become like wool. And when that happens, now this is prior to that happening in Isaiah's day, but when that happens, much like it does six chapters later for Isaiah personally, when you have the sin atoned for and the guilt removed, Man, there's a sense that the problem is solved. Things were bad. Things were guilty. I had a guilt on my back that should have been, been, been uh, punished by God, but it's, it's fixed. Now, I hope we could open up the mic and say, give me your testimony. Now, think of what it was to have the sense of your guilt forgiven. And if you say, well, I didn't feel any of that. I didn't sense that. Well, maybe you never went through this thing we've been talking about earlier of recognizing the conviction of God in your life over sin and the gravity and the fear of offending your your maker. If you didn't have that, well, then you probably didn't cry out for mercy. You probably signed up to join a club like we were. this is some kind of country club or something. But if you went through the steps of the experience of salvation that the Bible lays out, I assure you, you're going to have some experience of that relief, that fixed problem. And then... You're going to have the invasion of God's spirit in your life. God says over and over and over again, you get forgiven, you get the spirit. You become his child, you get the spirit. You get adopted, you get the spirit. And the spirit invades your life. And he brings certain experiences right out of the gate. Here's one, full conviction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Thess 1, 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. You received the word, he says in chapter 2, and you welcomed it, decomide, you embraced it, and it did its work in you. Well, the Spirit of God was the one who brings full conviction. When the Spirit invades your life, and you're in the process of that change that's taking place, which is not over a period of time. This is happening at, at light speed when God is doing that work in your life. The conviction to get you to full conviction may take years, may take months. But at that point, when the word of God changes you, goes to work in you, and the spirit invades your life, it, it comes with that full conviction, that complete transparency. And it doesn't matter who knows, and here I am, and God see it all, and I'm not going to hide it, I'm not going to run for it, I'm not going to run from it, I'm not going to cover it. I'm going to put it all out on the table. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, great examples of that experience. And then, of course, the Bible says you're going to be under the management of God. It's going to change your life. The Spirit, because He dwells there, will not play second fiddle to you anymore. On the outside, if you will, in the analogy, the spatial analogy of being with you but not in you, on the outside, you may think that you're in charge and you may act like you're in charge, but when He invades your life, He's, he's in charge. And the God is your co-pilot, the old joke and, and, and bumper sticker insert here. He's not your co-pilot. He won't play that game. If he really is in your life, he's, he's taken over. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You're living no longer in the realm of you doing what you want because of the spirit. You're living in the realm of, of because of your flesh, rather. You're in the realm of living in the spirit, capital S. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. He's taken up residency 
in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you say, I had no sense of that newness of life, well, then we got a problem. Because you can't be a Christian without that. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is now in you. You have all that you need to be acceptable before God. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So you got something new going on from the moment of your conversion that is a kind of difference that you didn't have before. Now we're going to take another lecture later on in this series and just deal with that transformative effect and some of the things that happen in that regard. But suffice it tonight to say that in the experience of our salvation, there comes that invasion of the Spirit that should give you the sense things aren't the way they were before. I'm not running this thing called my life on my own. I'm now submissive to someone who's managing me and is giving me life and is even helping me in this battle with my flesh, which Romans goes on to say a lot about. Also brings, maybe in the first thing you thought of, a sense of assurance. Romans chapter 8. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. No, I don't have that sense I had on the road to Christ, on the road to the gospel. No, I've received the spirit of adoption. And one thing that happens when the spirit invades my life is it gives me that sense that I'm right with God now. There's that relief of forgiveness, and the spirit is going to work with my spirit. It says, by that spirit, by whom we're going to cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's a great picture of one of the things that should happen. If you've never received that concept, that experience, the sense that, you know what? Yeah, I sense that I'm God's. I have that assurance that God is in me. Now, may it wane? Sure. When you stumble, do you question your salvation? Yes. But the reality of the Spirit invading your life, you're going to get the sense that, hey, this is different now. I was at odds with God. I was hostile toward God. I was alienated from God, but I'm not anymore. That's the assurance that the Spirit of God brings. That's the promise of Romans 8, 15 and 16. Number 10, you will have an undeniable redirection. There will be in your life now with the Spirit taking the controls. It doesn't make you passive. You certainly are collaborating. There's a synergistic experience here with your Spirit and His Spirit. But clearly, He's going to fight and He's going to win. And if you step off the path, He's going to discipline you. There's going to be an undeniable redirection of your life. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And again, this is so denied today because why? People haven't gone through the conviction of the Spirit. They don't have a sense of fear in offending God. They've never cried out for the mercy of God. They've come to a church. They like what they saw. They signed up. They raised a hand. They walked an aisle. They, they signed a card. They agreed to a tract. But they didn't get saved. If they got saved, then here's the thing. You're going to have the Spirit redirect your life by necessity. It's an undeniable, necessary redirection of your life. If you were born of God, verse 9 says, it's going to be different. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You can't stay on the same path. For God's seed abides in him. It's impossible. This new life in him cannot allow it. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Verse 10. By this, it is evident that who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. That's, that's clear, he says. And today we're always going, well, it's not very clear. I'm not really sure. If you're not sure, you, sh you should be sure. <laughs> and if you're confused, well, the confusion should make it clear that you can be absolutely sure because there's no way you can be undeniably changed by the residence of the Spirit and the seed of this new life that's been given to you. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And you hear people, when you teach this truth and read this inspired verse, they throw a flag and say, well, you're saying they have to be perfect. You've heard that a million times? That's not what this book teaches. Chapter 1 says, if you claim you're without sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about, as this says, direction. And that direction will clearly be different than it was before. God will not allow it to be the same. That inner compulsion to obey God. Undeniable. The Bible says, with the Spirit living in you, as a new Christian, you're going to learn right out of the gate to hate sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is right after the heels of those verses about that godly grief producing repentance that leads to salvation. Well, what about this godly grief and these saved people? Well, it produced this, an eagerness to clear themselves. Don't want to do that anymore. What kind of indignation, a righteous anger toward the things that you've done? A fear, I don't want to do that anymore. What longing, I want to do right. What zeal, I got to do right. What punishment, when you do wrong, you're not going to take it lightly. At every point, you prove yourselves to be innocent in the matter. You've changed your relationship with that sin because your disposition toward that sin has changed. That inner compulsion to obey will give you a kind of fit about sin that you never had prior to your conversion. You could feel guilty. You could want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But now, in a new relationship with God, the Spirit of God is going to create a repulsion, an indignation towards sin in your life. Letter C, an alienation from the world. And again, if you don't have this, and I fear, I look on Facebook sometime and I see some people claim Christ, go to our church, they have no alienation from this world. And I think to myself, how can you claim Christ? How can you say you're born again? How can you say the Spirit of God lives in you? How can you say you've had the biblical experience of salvation if you don't have a changed relationship with the world? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And by the way, as First John says, you'd love the world, but as it is. You're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And I'll say, as Galatians 6 says, you'll hate it. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of my favorite verses, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It works both ways. I thought we we're supposed to love the world. God so loved the world. Yeah, the reality of me loving people having eyes for the harvest, wanting to see people converted, that's one thing. But the system of this world, the loves of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, I hate it. I don't celebrate it. I don't cheer for it. I don't say it's good. I don't stand up for it. I'm not about it. I'm alienated from it. It hates me when it finds out who I am and what I stand for and what I live for and what I believe in. And frankly, as Paul said, I'm not real keen on it either. And I'm warned not to love the world or the things in the world. Things of the world, they're going to pass away. They're hostile toward us. Strangers and aliens in the world. We could go on and on with verses in this regard. Letter D. There's going to be a distinction, a distinction from culture. Look at this verse, which may be helpful for us to round out a view of salvation that we haven't touched on yet. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the coming wrath of God. Now, is that a biblical statement? Absolutely. And it's what he says to the Thessalonians. It's all over the Bible. But here he says, no, he gave himself for us to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God. Salvation includes not just the future 
deliverance from the coming judgment of God. While the rest of the world stores up wrath for the day of God's judgment, my wrath's been poured out on the cross and on Jesus. That's true and it's future. And one day I will be saved. But right now, I'm supposed to be being saved. From what? The present evil age. I'm supposed to have a distinction and a continuing growing distinction from the culture I live in. Great passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to this statement, knowing that you are the temple of God because the Spirit dwells in you, which he said in the first book. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, that's a rhetorical question that should have a very obvious answer. Biblically, it's none. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among among them. I will be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, go out of their midst. You have to be distinct from our culture. Be separate from them. You can't look like them. You can't be entertained like them. You can't have the same values as them. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, increasing intimacy with the living God, He says, Beloved Christians of Corinth, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. And there it is again, in the fear of God. This is a different kind of fear, not the fear that involves judgment. Thankfully, because of the love of God, that's been cast out. But now I have a fear of being entangled in the things in the post-Christian life, after my conversion, that put Christ on the cross. The Bible's going to be very clear about not only the demands of the Christian life, but the resources of the Christian life by the indwelling spirit to teach me to hate those things, to be distinct from those things. The world's going to hate my values, my life, and I'm going to have to live distinct as a Christian from theirs. Wow, I had 10 points. I thought that would take till 9 o'clock. That's why I talked so quickly and I got done. All right, gang, let's pray together. God, I know this is important because we flip over this tapestry and we see the experience that we have hopefully there's elements of our testimony that even that we can highlight and 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 clarify in our own minds that really touch on these points help us to go back over this outline this week thinking about our conversion and if somehow ours is different or lacking well then god help us to really test ourselves to see if we're of the faith really look at the reality of what the Spirit of God does prior to our conversion and what the Spirit of God is doing after our conversion. Of course, we're not teaching perfection and all these accusations that are thrown at us are nothing more than a smokescreen to try and get away from the reality of what the gospel is, what it requires, and what it does. So God, help us to be people that aren't going to be fooled by those things. Help us to be, as Paul said to Timothy, those that know that God knows those who are his. And let all those who name the Lord turn away from wickedness. God, we sin, we hate it, and our HFGs and our partners' discipleship programs, I mean, we confess our sins to one another, we help each other, all that's a reality. But God, that's a reality because your spirit has gotten a hold of our lives. He's working within us. He's taught us to hate these things that nailed Christ to the cross, and we don't want to trample his blood underfoot, so to speak, and make a mockery of the cross by not changing our relationship with sin. And then, God, the world, which grieves me all the time as a pastor, to see that some people just can't seem to see the distinction that we're called out of this world. People that live with the values of the world and give in at every turn with the slightest pressure to be just like everybody else, celebrating the garbage of this world. God, forgive us for that. Let us come out and be separate from these folks. Let us have a distinct culture that 
exalts you and, and, and showcases righteousness, the things that you love. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. What a great passage there in the Psalms reminding us of how we ought to cherish the things that you find important. And God, you said that those who ascend to your holy hill are the kinds of people that they see this corruption, this despicable action in the world, and we despise it. We can't stand it. God, we have to respond to our indignation and our displeasure and those frustrating feelings in a godly and a Christ-like way, but God, help us to realize that the Christian life is not about a realization of the kingdom in terms of, of the new Jerusalem, at least, right here and now. But that we're headed there. And we've got to go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. So help us to be all about truth. And I know, God, when we get into it, we saturate our minds with it. It's just, it's fulfilling and it's gratifying. But then we can get up from our study, get up from our Bible reading, get up from our prayer time and just be assaulted by so many things that make us question and doubt But lead us back to your truth, God. Guide us with your light. Send it forth for us that we can be guided to your holy hill and in our hearts be there more often. As Colossians says, always setting our minds on things above. So thanks so much, God, for this reminder of the experience of salvation. And I pray it would be helpful not only in our self-analysis of our testimony, but certainly in our evangelism. We seek to see your spirit guiding us as we speak and talk and exhort those who need Christ. Use our words, use our insight to guide people into a real clear and obvious connection with you when they get saved. That's what we want to see, God, at your work. We look forward to you doing more of it among us in Jesus' name. Amen.